This is the Gifted Kid Complex, the show where the panelists were gifted kids and refused to move on with a satirical take on intellectual elitism by having the most tongue-in-cheek, inane, pedantic, and convoluted conversations every week. Introducing your host this episode, she's ambitious to the point of hubris, it's Jessie. Enters stage left. That's my tagline <laughs> Slay? And every other episode... Her burnout is imminent. Your host is Taya C. Enters from stage right. Ah. There we go. I match your tagline. All right, we'll go with that. Each panelist here today has experienced gifted kid syndrome growing up in some way. Taya, what do you do? Where do you study? I do a BA in history at Oxford University. I'm at Corpus Christi College. My fun fact is that um, in like the 1640s, during like the revolution, in uh, Britain, they held like a really series of really famous radical debates at St. Mary's Church in Putney, which is coincidentally oh. next to a spoons that I frequent. That is weirdly kind of on the nose with what we're going to be talking about today. No way. Very tangentially, um, okay, but I think okay. you'll understand. I'm Cher. I study a BA in philosophy at UCL University College London. My fun fact for the day is that reptiles, monotremes, and marsupials don't have corpus callosums. So that's the part of the brain that connects the two hemispheres. My word of the day for you is actually more of an acronym of the day. Oh? Taya, if you know anything about me, what do you think my favorite acronym is? We talked about it today. Did we? Like, I mean, earlier today, like in DMs mm-hmm. or what? Mm-hmm. Yes, when we were texting. What did I specifically go and download in order to make a point? The IPA keyboard. Oh, IPA. Yes, there we go. I have a term of the day for you and it's IPA, which is an acronym. So we've not really done this before. We've done quotes and we've done words, but we've not done yeah. like a term. Uh, and yeah. this term in specific is an acronym. We use it as a noun. And the definition I have from Britannica is an alphabet developed in the 19th century to accurately represent the pronunciation of languages. So for those of you who don't know, and I do not blame you if you don't, IPA stands for International Phonetic Alphabet. It does not stand for India Pale Ale. <laughs> Um, well, it does, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. It does. It does. Cher, it does. will you be the international phonetic alphabet to my India Pale Ale? <laughs> you know, that's kind of what we are, I think. It really is. It summarizes us. Doesn't it? Sort yeah. of. Like, with, if we were two sides of the same acronym, I would be international phonetic alphabet and you would be India Pale Ale. I would be. That's exactly what it would be. Why I mention IPA is because it's something that I've been trying to learn in terms mm. of both transcription and interpretation. Even though I've described what it is, you might not know where you see it. So if you look at dictionaries, dictionary entries, sometimes specific terminology or foreign language mm. terminology on Wikipedia, whatnot, your encyclopedias, you might see some squigglies next to the word in squigglies. probably slashes. Or it might be in square brackets, mm. depending on the usage. Or in our show notes. Or in our show notes. We also always put the IPA in our show notes because it's my show. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah. What kind of a show would it be if I made a show that was academic and we had words of the days and we did not use the IPA? Yeah, no. Genuinely. That, that was never a scenario. <laughs> no, it just wasn't. That meaning of IPA is not as relevant to this episode as the other one. What? India Pale Ale? 
yes, we're going to be talking a little bit about beer. I am also going to mention, I am a sober person. I think this has come up on the show before, but I'm not sure. Mm, it has. I stopped drinking about eight months ago, but that doesn't mean that I don't think alcohol is something interesting just as like like cultural phenomenon and like it's industry mm. so unknown odyssey is our format where we unfold myths legends and chronicles in front of me i have a timeline and a series of questions i will be prompting the progression of our tale through questions and the panel has to uncover the story through educated guesses and shots in the dark so whatever we're talking about today is something that happened quite a long time ago our research team is not professional. We're all just undergrads. Granted, we are all undergrads who are very invested and very interested in research, but there's only so much we can do. And because the records are not super, super clear as to what happened, sources disagree as to certain numbers. Testimony differs, let's just say that. And there weren't that many sources that we could find, that many citations, but we are presenting as best we can what we did put together and if anybody's listening who knows more about it and if we got anything wrong please do feel free to contact us and let us know and we would love to engage in discussion about it anyway so let's proceed so today we are talking about a tragic event that happened at horseshoe brewery so where and when do you think this happened you gotta give me something more to go off of somewhere kind of relevant to both of us singapore no, the other place. The UK? Yes, where in the UK? Oh, okay, brewery. This makes sense. The UK is mm -hmm. uh, notorious for a very strong drinking culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where exactly in the UK? Scotland? No, it's somewhere that both you and I are in quite often. You mean like London? There you go. We are in London right okay. now. So, you know it's a brewery called Horseshoe Brewery and we're set in London. Do you want to try and put us in a rough time frame? You can just give me a century. 18th? 19th, actually. So, we are set in 1814. Ooh. Okay. Before the ending of the Napoleonic War. I'll give you slightly more detail about the location. This is situated on the junction of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street. This is a place that is really close to home for me as someone who goes to UCL and is often in the area and kind of lives around that area. It is a short walk away mm. and I did not know that when I first started researching this and it was just like a strange kind of feeling because I've been there. I've been to that spot. Me learning about St. Mary's Church in Putney. Yeah, that's why I kind of said and like the spoons yeah. and like this is beer, right? Oh, okay. Two, I almost said 2000. This area 200 years ago mm. was not in the economic state that it currently is. If you've been to London, you know that Bloomsbury is a very wealthy area. It's very expensive, very central London. Back then it was a rickery, St. Giles rickery. And it was very, very famous for high rates of poverty, Irish immigrants. That's the kind of area it was. With that in mind, who is Sir Henry Mew? Sir Henry M-E-W? M-E-U-X. French? In French, it'd probably be more like Mew, and in American English, it'd probably be like Mew, but it's a French last name. Is he the owner? He is, so he's the owner of Horseshoe Brewery. Purchased Horseshoe Brewery in 1809, um, and he only brewed Porter, knowing that Sir Henry Mew was the owner of Horseshoe Brewery. Who is Sir Richard Mew? The brother, I suppose? Try again. 
The father? The father, yes, correct. So, Sir Richard Mew co-owned okay. a brewery before Sir Henry Mew bought his. So his father was also mm. a brewer. Why do you think that relationship kind of matters to this story? Because he inherited it from his dad? He inherited something, sort of. He followed in his father's footsteps in the same profession, or...? So he sort of inherited something in that he tried to copy his father's model of the brewery. Okay. Sir Richard Mew had constructed the largest vat in London at the time, which is what Sir Henry Mew tried to emulate. Okay. So Sir Richard Mew's big vat, his biggest vat, had a capacity of 20,000 imperial barrels, close to a million litres. That's a lot. It is a lot. The size of the beer vat is what he tried to copy. Do you think Henry did better or worse than his father? I mean, if his father had refused to share the secrets of it, then I'd think that maybe he did worse i don't know if it's about the secrets or anything like that but he just didn't he didn't do it yeah so his biggest bat had a capacity of eighteen thousand barrels which is still a lot big that's still really big do you know anything about the construction of beer vats literally nothing i know a lot about pub culture Uh, nothing about like the actual mechanics of how it was made back then Beer vats were mostly constructed out of wood and iron bands. So very kind of, imagine a barrel, but big, is kind of what it was like. Mm. Um, And they were often made out of oak to what we could see, but I imagine there were probably other materials, other woods. Yeah. And the iron bands are heavy. 320 kilograms. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So the vat that Henry Mew constructed, and from now on, I'm only going to refer to him. So if I say Mew, it's going to be Henry. The vat he constructed was 22 feet tall, 6.7 meters. Okay. It was structured with 81 metric tons worth of iron as supporting structures to secure the vat. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very sturdy vat, but I would like to state, because there was a lot of confusion as to this, he did have smaller vats. He didn't only have vats of that size. That being said, George Crick was Mew's storehouse clerk. So we know that a tragedy happened in 1814, and this was on the 17th of October. At half past four, 4.30 p.m., what did George Crick notice in the brewery? He was in the brewery. A leak? Sort of. So he noticed that one of the iron bands had slipped off one of the big vats. Oh. There was a kind of confusion as to when we were researching this, which vat it was because numbers didn't make sense. Some testimony gave volumetric um, numbers that didn't seem to line up with the height of the barrel. It tried to do some maths. It didn't really make sense. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure. And I would like to reach out to people who are actually aware or more researched about it. You know, like one of those things that we don't know. Yes, it might be based on the numbers. And you'll understand why this is something that I'm a bit confused about. So I imagine it's not the 18,000 barrel one. And it seems that people don't think it was that one. It doesn't seem to be that one. But there was some weird information out there saying that the height of this barrel was the 22 feet one, which is why I was confused. So George noticed that one of the iron bands have slipped. How did he feel about this? What was his reaction? Panic? Surprisingly... He was unconcerned because this happened a couple of times each year. He had been working at the brewery for, I think, six, seven years. I'm not sure. But he had been working there quite some time. So he was familiar with what it's like to be in the brewery. What's out of the ordinary? This didn't seem to be that case because they could just put it back. So 
this vat was quite full. Mm. It was filled to within four inches, 10 centimeters, to the top with 10-month-old Portia. Crick's testimony says that in this vat was 3,555 imperial barrels, which is why I was confused if the 18,000 barrel vat was 22 feet tall. And the vat that we're talking about right now is also 22 feet tall. That volume doesn't really make sense. So that's kind of why I was a bit confused. Maybe it was narrower. I did the maths. The radius would have had to be like one meter. What do you mean do the maths? So I just did some calculations based on the volume. So I converted imperial barrels to liters, cubic meters, and this, then I had SI units. Oh, and from then on, oh, oh, I could oh, then oh. calculate based okay, okay, on okay, the okay, height, okay. what the radius of the circle would have to be. And it was really, really stupidly small for a 6.7 tall vat. Yeah, that... I don't imagine that that height was right. So I don't really know what numbers are right here. I am just laying out what we found. Okay. It was probably not one of the biggest vats. I mean, like, I think we know for a fact that it wasn't one of the biggest vats because Crick's testimony indicated that the volume was significantly less than the big, 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 like the mega big vat. So he went to his supervisor. Okay. Who told him that, and this is a quote, no harm whatever would ensue. Not whatsoever, whatever. I'm not really sure why, but that's what it said. Let him cook. So do you have any ideas of what Crick's supervisor would have told him to do? Do nothing? He told him to write a note to one of the brewery's partners, whose name was Mr. Young. He was also the bat builder, uh, to have it fixed. Just pass it on. We'll sort it out in the future. Write a memo, basically. Mm. Um, so he does that, and he intends on handing the note over to Young. Yeah. Since you know the location of where it is, I'm sure you've been there. Horseshoe Brewery doesn't exist anymore. Why do you think it doesn't? Beer exploded. Yeah, so one of the vats spontaneously burst. Oh boy. Yeah, um, so the beer was releasing so forcefully, the stopcock of a neighboring vat also was dislodged. Wow. So let's go back to 5.30pm on the same day. So an hour after Crick noticing that the ban had dropped, George Crick is standing on a platform 30 feet away from the vat. What is he doing there? Writing the note? Actually, he's handing the note over to Mr. Young. Okay. In this moment, and again, this is testimony, I don't know if this actually happened, as he's handing the note over to Mr. Young, the note that says, hey, let's get this back fixed. Explosion. Yeah, so one of the iron bands holding the vat together snaps, and that blasts some other vats open as well. Okay. All of the beer just rushed out, flooded into the street. So this event is called the London Beer Flood. It is a tragic event, so I'm trying to be, like, respectable about this. Mm. So the violence of the explosion was so strong that it caused the wall on the north side of the building and mm. part of its roof to collapse. Oh, shit. That's how forceful this liquid was exploding out of the vat. So the walls were 7.6 meters okay. high. Yeah, metric system, baby. The measurements that I received immediately were in Imperial. Fuck the Imperial system. And then I converted them. No, oh, fuck that. Um, yeah, I know, right? Convert. Okay, 7.6 meters. And two and a half bricks thick. Okay. And some of the bricks were knocked, like, up. Jesus. And they fell onto the roofs of the houses in Great Russell Street. So again, this event was a tragedy. And the flood reached George Street and New Street minutes after this happened. Um, and it's just completely flooded the entire area with a huge tide of alcohol. Do you want to guess how high the wave was? There's no way. Uh, 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 like, I don't know, 20 centimeters? 15 feet. 
15 foot high wave of beer and debris was rushing out because again it wasn't just one vat because the one vat exploded and then it exploded the rest of them yes so like it yes. hit all the other vats that were there and the okay mm-hmm. okay i don't okay, know okay, if it's okay, all okay, the okay. vats like multiple vats and all right multiple barrels as well this is worth doing the maths because like i don't mm-hmm. know how many vats they had in there i don't know how many but if you counted cumulatively all of the beer that was in there then added the volume of the debris could it reach 15 feet I think what we found was that multiple sources actually indicated that this number was accurate. I think this was cross-referenced. Okay. So the calculations that I was doing were about how big the big vats were. I didn't think that I really had enough information to calculate how much beer was released. But even then, that number has varied a lot between sources. By threefold, I think, was like the range. Jesus. It was a very big wave and it flooded basements into houses, you know, um, and it caused them to collapse. People dealt with it by climbing up furniture. Unfortunately, eight people's lives were lost and they were all women and children because this happened on a Monday. So Mm. the boys and the men of any working age would have been away. They wouldn't have been in the rookery. I will list their names at the end to kind of honor their memory. I would also like to clarify that um, a lot of women in urban areas did work. Women are more likely to take on extra uh, labor to help their husbands. So obviously more women would be at home than men, obviously. But it is true that some women would perhaps take on work in the house. So doing laundry, washing, knitting, etc. They would still be in the house. One of the women who died was a maid. So yeah, yeah domestic service, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's working away so in terms of like factory labor labor outside yes. of the home yeah different sectors obviously have different gender balances but uh, men were expected to at least uh work outside the home mm. so i suppose we can we can at least make that statement there were these rumors that i found and this is actually how i found out about this that people drank the beer. In the street? Yeah. There were some stories that there was a ninth death. Okay. Um, after the, you know, the initial eight deaths because of alcohol poisoning, but this doesn't seem to actually be the case. It seems to be kind of just a, a story, a rumor that was made up. So the newspapers at the time did not make any reports of the residents in the area being rowdy. They didn't really react in a very chaotic way. Mm. And because they were all immigrants, and poor, the newspapers would have jumped on the opportunity to rag on them if they had it. So it it seems unlikely that it happened and they didn't report it. Contrary to that, the reports seem to say that everybody reacted very calmly. Um, Everybody was very quiet so that they could try and hear the victims if they were crying for help. And there were bystanders. So I'm going to ask you, how did bystanders react to the wave at the time? Not the victims, People who were just around. Um, gawk. Watchmen charged people a penny or two to see the ruins, is what it says here. Hundreds of people came to watch. I don't imagine it was immediate, but um, probably in the days following. That honestly sounds about right. 
the slums and kind of impoverished areas were seen as sort of tourist attractions. Mm. Middle-class philanthropy was kind of a hallmark of what it meant to be middle-class. You have like an obligation to those below Mm. you and of course a duty to those above you. Yes. So it makes sense that they would turn it into a tourist attraction because people in the slums and living in the slums was seen as something exotic. It was fetishized almost. Yeah, it's so um, paternalistic. And patronizing. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. They gawked at it, kind of made it a tourist thing. A lot of donations happened for the victims yep. and the area. Philanthropy. Yep, that that classic philanthropy. Mm. Damage was devastating, right? It was huge. It was very widely reported. Multiple um, newspapers reported on it. And naturally, Horseshoe Brewery was taken to court. That makes sense. How did the jury respond? Okay, wait. Can you give me like the class of the jury? Are we? Are we? I'm. I'm guessing they're middle class, upper class. I cannot. I don't have that information. Ah. But I. I am guessing they're probably. They're definitely not. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Forgive me for not knowing how that works in this period. I should know. I don't imagine that poor people would have been jurors. Okay, I, I'm guessing that they were not very sympathetic towards Horseshoe Brewery. Actually. Very nicely, they paid their respects and they all agreed it was a tragedy. Oh! And that the verdict from the court was that it was an act of God. Oh, wait, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so they didn't need to pay any compensation. That makes a lot of sense. Here's a title, right, sir? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because in 1814, I would imagine that xenophobia towards Europeans perhaps triumphs over xenophobia towards the Irish at this period in time. Mm. I would also like to say that Mind, the official union of the UK, happens in 1801. Mm. And it was between the Parliament of Great Britain and the Parliament of Ireland to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. 1814 is further away from, let's say, the question of Irish home rule in 1886 than the Acts of Union in 1801. Yeah. Obviously, the Acts of Union may not have been universally kind of embraced, but keep in mind that in 1814, Great Britain and Ireland are, are one mm. in, in, in the kind of the legal sense. So the Irish uh, immigrants there may have maybe actually seen as um, having a right to be there because of the Acts of Union. And also perhaps that England would be a force for their civilization. In a, in a sense, of bringing forward of their backwardsness. Interesting. Um, I I could see that being a being the case. It also kind of uh, is mediated by paternalism, an idea that we have to take care of them, and obviously lives have been lost. So I think it is yeah. natural that there is sympathy involved. I think also the gentlemen of the brewery would have lost a lot of money. Yeah, they did. There was a letter mm. written by. An anonymous friend of humanity in the Morning Post, and this is a quotation from it. I have always held it as my firm opinion that the many breweries and distilleries in this metropolis are most dangerous establishments and should not be permitted to stand in the heart of the town. The correspondent wrote, I am only surprised when I consider the immense body contained in these ponderous vats that similar accidents do not more frequently occur. Be very, very careful because some things are seen as more radical than others. In this period, I think that naturally it would make sense that anyone who is outraged and who sees the public sympathy and disagrees with the public sympathy would take it upon themselves to write a letter. He wasn't disagreeing with the public sympathy. Well, he was saying that 
the beer establishment should be closed down and taking a very critical view, right, of the people who frequent like ale houses and those kind of establishments. He said they were dangerous, which mm. I think is just factual, to be honest, um, because of having that amount of fermenting liquid in oh, just completely. like huge, huge, huge vats. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned that the brewery would have suffered major losses, obviously. Mm. So we already discussed that the court's verdict was act of God, so they didn't have to pay victim compensation. They didn't have to pay victim compensation is about right. Sounds, sounds, sounds uh, believable. Yeah. Um, but they did have to pay damage costs. So the lost beer, the building, the vats cost about 23,000 pounds at the time. That's a lot. They had to petition parliament for 7K to be saved from bankruptcy. In 1921, what happened to Horseshoe Brewery? It, it came back? Oh, it closed, actually. So, like, quite the opposite. Um, and it was demolished the next year. Oh, okay. Oh, so they filed for back... So they, so they got the money from parliament? Yes. Okay. Um, Interesting. But this is, this is 100 years later. They did move their brewery in 1921 mm. to Nine Elms Brewery in Wandsworth, which was purchased in 1914. I will say that in researching this, there were some things that just said Mew moved the brewery. And I was like, what are you talking about? Guy would not have been alive. It didn't say Mew and Co. It just said Mew. And that was ambiguous and confusing for me. Did he move the, from the... He must have moved from the original site. No, 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 no. They, um, I'm pretty sure they just stayed there because that venue closed in 1921. But it got destroyed. They rebuilt it. That's why there were damaged costs. Okay. The successes continued the business, definitely, for sure. And it, they just moved to a new location the mm. next century. So the brewery industry in London did change following the events of 17th October. So what do you think they did? Regulation on the size of the vat that you're allowed to have. Mm. Um, I didn't see that. It was more about changing the material, the construction. Oh. So the pure wood okay. vats were phased out of being manufactured, being phased out of use. And I should mention that by 1814, the big, big wooden vats were getting more and more popular mm. in London's brewery industry. It was particularly about London that they kept trying to get bigger and bigger vats. They probably have to because of the increasing urban population and high like, population density. So it makes sense to make bigger vats. It was also... Um, a, a novelty thing. Yeah, spec like, you know, a spectacle. That was like, wow, look at this big vat. Yeah. Exactly. That was like, that's why they tried to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know, because it did say at the time about Richard Mew's 20,000 um, barrel vat. I don't know if they made them even bigger, especially following the London beer flood. Oh. But it did say at the time. Okay. I'm not sure. I didn't really do that research because um, that's not what my, my focus was on. But the wooden vats were phased out they were slowly starting to be replaced by concrete vats lined with tar or enamel or similar kind of material lining. And now in modern times, we mostly use stainless steel, um, especially for like large industrial brewing. So this is my final question. What do you think happened in this surrounding area afterwards? Rehabilitation, I suppose. Okay, I, that's my bad for not being specific enough. <laughs> the area stank of beer for months. Damn. And like I said, I have been to this plot. I've been inside it because now it is the Dominion Theatre on that same plot. Oh. Um, which was constructed in March of 1928 and it opened the following year. 
And also now in the 20th century, uh, a, a pub nearby on Sicilian Avenue, mm. um, the Hoban Whippet, which is now closed, they started serving an annual beer flood porter to commemorate the flood. That is the story of the London beer flood. Admittedly, not in a lot of detail because this is a short form podcast, but that was my best retelling of it or, you know, my what whatever we could put together as, you know, amateur researchers, <laughs> but we did try our best. I will have a hunt on Solo and see if there's anything more I can find. Yeah, I actually have like more um, bits. Yeah. In 1751, when the pro-beer anti-gin gin act was passed, <laughs> St. Giles Rookery was the inspiration for Gin Lane, a print illustrating intense poverty to be contrasted with Beer Street, which was not a real place. It was just kind of a colloquialism, a print illustrating the happy British people. So it's the site of both Gin Lane and the London Beer Flood, quite ironically. Mm. I'm going to move on to the big London vats because, you know, that was a big thing. So huge porter vats were a very attractive concept to breweries that were starting to show up or like move over to London. So I have this quotation from Ian S. Hornsey from A History of Beer and Brewing. It is thought that one of the most spectacular sites, certainly at the major London porter breweries, was the sheer size of the storage vats, much kudos being attached to the brewer in possession of the largest example. Hence kind of an arms race almost to try and construct the biggest bat um, mm. over and over time, leading to this giant 20,000 imperial barrel capacity bat. Mm. So in 1763, so way before the London beer flood, huge bats were already being constructed and very, very commonly installed into many of the breweries. And the capacity was admittedly not in the same magnitudes as the big ones that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. but 1,500 barrels capacity, which is still very big. And they just continued to get bigger mm. after that, eventually leading to the big ones we were talking about. Mm. But we do have to say that the big one was not the one that exploded. They just had it. The one that did leak and eventually, you know, I guess you could call it explode, it, it burst was one of the smaller ones and it was 3,500 imperial barrels was the number that George Crick gave. Yeah, sources really, really vary as to how much total beer was released in the flood. Sources say, sources disagree, I should say. They always do. They do. Um, the range that I see is 128,000 and 323,000 imperial gallons. Okay. Of beer. So I should do it in leashes. 580,000 to 1,470,000 leashes. Wow. Are the numbers. So a wide range, but no matter what, even the smallest number is huge. So kind of scary. Um, so let me do my reading out of the victims' names Eleanor Cooper, age 14, Mary Mulvey, age 30, Thomas Murray, age 3, who is Mary Mulvey's son, Hannah Bamfield, age 4. And four months, Sarah Bates, age three, uh, five months, and Saville, age 60, Elizabeth Smith, age 27, and Catherine Butler, age 65. And I should mm. also note that some of those people, they were attending a child's wake at the time, and they were then buried with that child um, following. So it was a very tragic event. Yeah, it makes sense that it is the elderly and um, children, because 
adult women, probably a lot of them would have been working actually. Um, yeah. The 14 year old is interesting. I believe she was the maid. Was she the maid? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense given dynamics of the time period. I think that's all I have. All right. So, did you have any other thoughts? Did you have anything you wanted to say? I do believe that the Brits could outdrink the Americans. <sighs> that is so true. The Brits could drink a greater volume of alcohol despite the population difference. I I do fully believe that the I don't know how many people live in the UK, but that amount could beat the population of the entire United States, like, easily. Easily. Sure. Easily. I, I don't, I think that's probably true. <laughs> if we include Southern Ireland into the UK, we win. Like, automatically. The Irish are powerful. I. It's crazy <laughs> to me that as a 20-year-old studying in a London university that I am sober. <laughs> but I, I do have to admit, I used to really enjoy a beer back when I drank. And mm. I do miss it at times. But, you know, sobriety comes first. I do think that it's... It has a very interesting history. Breweries and relationships with alcohol and everything has always been a big part of just humanity. Mm. The moment they discovered that we could ferment shit. Um, and it's 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 just fascinating. And it's good for calories. It's good for calories? Yeah. Beer is super high in calories. Oh, sorry. I understand what you mean now. I, I understand what you mean now. I was yeah, like, no. I, yeah. Um, yes. Don't drink too much, guys. It's not that good for you. Um, <laughs> But, like, it makes sense why they would f start fermenting stuff in the first place, just because. Yes. I mean, there were, like, multiple reasons, right? There was, like, preservation, mm, fermenting things. Um, exactly. Food preservation and salting. Yeah. Drying things out. So maybe one day we'll talk about that on the show. But thank you for listening to The Gifted Kid Complex. If you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast and would like to support us, a very simple way to do so is to let people know that we're here. Subscribe or follow so that you can come back every week and please rate and review us so others can find us too, especially on Spotify. You can support us more directly by pledging on Patreon. There you'll find our episodes in video form, exclusive bonus content made out of the fascinating tangents that landed on the cutting room floor and before and after commentary from the cast and crew. It is linked in our show notes alongside any citations and references to topics we discussed today if you want further reading. If you can't pledge on Patreon, we understand, but not to worry, because here on our main RSS feed, we also occasionally release bonus content for free that everybody can listen to. And our episodes in video form will be made available for everybody on YouTube every three months. We'd also love to hear from you if you'd like to contact us for business inquiries, to ask questions, or just to show us anything that you think we'd find interesting. You can do so via our email or our form in the link tree in the show notes or through our Instagram account, which Cher manages. I check everything. The Gifted Kid Complex is created, directed, and produced by me, Cher C. Our co-hosts and primary writer researchers are Cher C and Taya C. Our primary editor is Cher C. Our secondary editor is Taya C. Our audio engineer is Taya C. And our talented team of lovely assistant writer researchers consists of Alex E, Delaney L, Isaiah H, Jenny S, and Lucas H. We record our episodes on Riverside.fm and publish with RSS.com. So thank you to them for helping us in making the Gifted Complex exist. Next week is Taya's last episode of the season. Woo! Very, very cool. Expect the best. Expect the best. Um, of the 3am shit that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna deliver. Sobriety is valid. 
So see you next week. See you next week.